or asked you how you got the name Rock and Johnny? Oh, well, it's kind of bad form, but I suppose I christened myself Rock and Johnny. <laughs> but then I did earn the name, but I, I did that because I was on WHBK, which was the college radio station. So I just, you know, there was Magic Sam and all these cool names. And I thought, man, and, and there was Good Rock and Charles. And I thought I should be Rock and Johnny, you know, because I, I was on the air like two to four in the morning or three to five in the morning. So this is a radio DJ name. Yes. That's where it started. Yes. Okay. And then I just was forever Rock and Johnny after that. That's a good name. But what, okay, is it based on what you just said, like Rock and Charles? or was I was thinking about Magic Sam and Good Rock and Charles, and I thought I should have a cool name. And there you have it. I'm talking to Rock and Johnny Bergen, who's who just I'm came in up. from hello. We just came in from Ottawa, and he's doing a gig tonight in Toronto, and we have to get there in about an hour or so. But before we do, we're gonna have a little conversation about his life in music. Um, tell me where you were born. Sure, I was born in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Okay, how long did you stay there? Like a, a month. Oh, that's I, it? I was just there because. Uh, my father was an actor, and he was doing summer stock theater work out there. So that's where my parents were living. Uh, they were living in New York, and uh, both my parents are from Mississippi. And so I lived in New York till I was about seven or eight, and then we moved back to Mississippi. They just moved there for their own reasons. And What was and, growing up in Mississippi like? Well, we, we lived in my father's. The house that my father grew up in, mm -hmm. which was a pretty old house out in the country, really, but it was at one time a very nice place, and, and uh, but it was cold, in the cold in the winter and hot in the summer, because <laughs> it was just a very very old house, and uh, but it was great, you know, like my mother would cook stuff on a fire, and all this, and I ran around in the country and all that, and you know, it was great. Okay, so. Did music come into your life back then, or is there any connection to you playing the blues and the fact that you you, you grew up well, there? Well, you know, when I visit my grandparents, I think it it sort of helped me because you know they they spoke in a southern in a southern way and and uh, they were just like later on it helped me understand these. When I met the actual blues people in Chicago, right. then I understood them as just people who lived in Mississippi. <laughs> and you could understand them. I could totally understand everything they said, right. which when I moved to Mississippi as a seven-year-old, I did not understand a word anyone said. Right. I, I couldn't understand anything a black person said. And, you know... Well, so, some accents are heavy. <clears throat> yes, and, you know, I couldn't understand at first. But anyway, I got to understand things and... Uh, so I think it gave me an edge, you know, later on when I was in college and met Little Smokey and Big Smokey and all that. You know, when I was, you know, my father's from Starkville, my mother's from Macomb. They knew where all those places were, you know, but, and okay, so I could understand the way they talked. Did, when did music come into your life? My dad taught me how to play guitar because I was in a play. My, my dad was doing theater and I would spend summers with him at this theater. And we, as an apprentice, it was called because it's a very hierarchical system. Right. So all the apprentices decided to do a play, and the play was Bus Stop, and I was Vern, and I had to play a cowboy song on stage. And I was like, cool, I'm going to get to play guitar, you know? How old were you? I was about 15. And because uh, my dad was a folk musician, as well as a... They were, they were, they were not exactly boomers, my parents were kind of older than the boomers, so they weren't hippies. They were more like folkies, which were pre-hippies. Right. You know, they were both alive during the World War II. Right. So um, I got to play guitar for that play. And my dad taught me how on, on the Stella. I have the Stella still. And um, so he taught me the chords and all this, and I quickly just, uh, you know... I just kept on playing and playing and playing and playing. And I really flirted with the idea of being an actor. And I decided, no, I, you know, it was, I was this close to just throwing, throwing everything into being an actor, but. Because you loved it. it so much. You know, it was calling me, but you know, 
I just didn't do it. So I went to school and studied literature because I was good at that. I mean, college. I was always good at writing and literature, and I always, you know, I always excelled at it. So I just did it. Did you have a plan as to where what that would lead to? No. Okay. Just something you enjoyed. Yeah. And then I was playing guitar already at that point because my mom, she bought me an electric guitar for Christmas, and that was the first Rickenbacker, you know. And I just got so into playing that guitar, I would play it as soon as I got home from school until I went to bed. What were you playing? Oh, I, I tried to learn a song a day. I think I learned every song by the doors, you know. It's a classic <laughs> rock. Yeah, totally. And uh, everything else. Like, I also liked Arlo Guthrie. Mm-hmm. I liked Bob Dylan. Um, and, you know, then, like, I started taking guitar lessons, and I was turned on to, like, Jimmy Reed and Magic Sam and Eddie Taylor. So I already knew about all that stuff when, when I got to college. But you really just don't understand it until... You just can't understand that kind of music as a high school student mm-hmm. and even as a college student. You can't exactly understand that music because it's that's the music of people, you know, who have kids, who have like really lousy jobs and I've had a lot of disappointment that a University of Chicago student generally does not experience. You didn't go to Chicago because of the blues. I did. Oh, you did? So you I thought, did. You I chose you... University of Chicago because it was right by the checkerboard. Oh, okay. But I mean, what did that mean? Like, did you think one day you would play music? Or... No, I just thought, this is so cool. I could go hear music at the checkerboard if I go to University of Chicago. You know, it's on the south side. You know, like, <laughs> so... So you, you know, were into blues already then? Yes, okay. yes. But, it, but I didn't, like, I was into blues. I was into heavy metal. I was into classic rock. I was into jazz. I had this massive record collection with absolutely everything. And um, I spent all my, I worked part-time and I spent all my money on records. You know, typical stuff of a budding musician. And uh, it wasn't until I went to see Tail Dragger on the West Side that I, and I played, I sat in with them. Because I had already played some gigs in high school. And I, I, so I thought I could play and I thought I was good because somebody had paid me money for it, you know? Right. So but, and when I, you played gigs in high school, what were you playing? Oh, God. I was just playing like... Like rock. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I was like subbing for my uh, guitar teacher. So, but it was, it was, it was just baby steps, you know? Because the get... learning curve for music is just enormous. Well, yeah. On so many different it's, levels, right? It, it's enormous on a, on a million levels. I'm going to digress a tiny bit to prove my point. Um, I'm sorry about that, but remember, <laughs> do you remember there was that, that, that great, that guy, Eric, Eric Davis was shot. Mm. Oh yes, yes, yes. So yes. he was, he was about my age or a little bit younger, I guess. Maybe he was 40 or I don't know. Mm-hmm. He was young. And yes. And Eddie Shaw said, you know, it's a terrible shame. Because it takes 20 years to make a blues man. So he was saying like he had just made a blues man, you know, after like, you know what I mean? After 20. And, you know, that is a very, that is, that is very, very true. So, I mean, if, so it takes a long time. Yeah. I mean, you could say that for many genres, right? Of course. Yeah. So tell me about that first gig with Tail Dragger. Yeah, the first gig with Tail Dragger. That's when I realized I was, I was at, at a, I had to throw out everything I knew and just start all over and learn how to play the blues. And Because uh, I would imagine what what, whatever you hear on a record that you grew up with that says blues is completely different from just walking in and playing a gig with Tell Dragger. Yeah. Yes. It very much is. But it also, it gave me, I could finally contextualize it and it finally made sense. And then when I would go back and listen to those records again, I would think, oh my God, what if that guy had just walked into the Tail Dragger gig and played that? You know, those people would have like gone straight to the Mars. You know what I mean? Because the people were screaming and then, you know, they were yelling and screaming at Tail Dragger and stuff. I mean, in a good way, you know, they were, you know, the people, it was really rowdy and the people were really reacting. What what year would this be? No, 90. Okay. So... Then you started playing with him a lot. Maybe you played with a lot of people, right? Yeah, you played with a lot of heavy-duty Chicago musicians. 
What did that teach you? Well, everybody had something different to offer. Jimmy Lee Robinson like drilled me mercilessly, and you know, In what he way? was well. He practiced and practiced, and I think he had some kind of like some kind of like mental thing where he would just get on a subject and he would just he could just stay there for like eight hours. You know what I mean? I'd be like dropping a fatigue, and he would just go and go. I mean, he could easily rehearse you for the entire night. You know, right. so and Big Wheeler was was really cool. Yank Rachel, everybody had something different. I probably learned the most from Sam Lay. And can you give me an example of what you might have learned? Well, I guess I, I had to be pretty good just to just to play with Sam. So Sam was the first guy that took me really on the road a lot. It was the first time I came to Canada and okay. did a lot of stuff. But the thing I learned about Sam was that, like, Sam doesn't have the biggest, most powerful voice. He's got a good voice, mm-hmm. you know, not an amazing voice. But a very good voice, but he was able to choose choose songs that made him look like a million bucks, and it also they were also kind of bullet points of his resume, and he made me he really taught me like repertoire is everything because you know how to pick things that that flatter you right just like if you go to a store I mean there's only going to be like one or two suit coats that really look good on you. And he, so he was, you know, he would teach me things like that. And he was really professional and he always gave his all because some people play kind of like they're a plumber and they're coming in there and they're fixing the sink and they're doing their job and they're getting their money and leaving. And other people are like climbing Mount Olympus, you know, and Sam was in that category, you know, it was all about the glory, you know, and like he never did a show like where he wasn't like dripping with sweat at the end of it, you know, because he'd just given everything he had. So... In your career at this point, are you still going to school? Are you thinking I'm now a full-time musician? Where are you at when you're playing with these people? I'm really not playing with... Uh, I'm really doing my own thing now. Okay. I've... No, sorry. Back then when you were playing with Sam and... Oh, I misunderstood and, you. I'm sorry. Sorry. No, um, like, are you, were you still going to school? Well, I graduated from school in 92. So... I was then I was with Tail Dragger for a few years. So at that point, you graduate from school. You're not doing anything with your English degree. I did nothing with it ever. You you're at this point now a musician full time. Yes. How was that? Like how was it? How was it to be this kid from the southern U.S. coming into Chicago? And how easy were you accepted by these people, these blues musicians? I mean, you have to just keep going. You can't just show up and then. I mean, I was out every night. So that I think that's why, and I had a good attitude. I just wanted to learn. I just wanted to help out. I just wanted to play. You know, I wasn't trying to be famous. You know, I respected everyone. You know, I listened to people, and I just wanted. I just wanted to be around. So I went out every single night for years. You know, because there was always something cool to do. On Tuesday night, you could go see Eddie Clearwater, for right. five bucks. You know. I mean, or for nothing, if, you know, usually they'd let me in, you know? And, you know, everybody was around. L.V. Banks, Little Max Simmons. There was all these cool, obscure people around. And so there was always something to do. And and what, as you got to know them, and you were basically living in this Chicago blues life, what, what did you imagine it to be? Was it what you imagined it to be? Every day was like Christmas to me. I didn't know what it would be like. I couldn't believe that, I mean, the first time I ever had to turn down a gig because I was booked, I thought that was like the greatest thing that had ever happened to me, you know? <laughs> it's like, I can't believe it, you know? Well, how I mean, long, like how, what, where are you at at this point? Like, have you been doing it for a year, six no, months? I was or? just, well, the first, the first few years, I was like substitute teaching and just going out every night and I mm-hmm. had a few gigs here and there and I just kept getting more and more gigs. I just kept getting more and more gigs. And then with Tail Dragger, you know, he went to prison then I became kind of the leader of of the band that Tail Dragger had. Right. And I kept the same gigs. And I had it with Mary Lane. So then all of a sudden I was sort of like, you know, responsible for a gig, you know. So I just kept increasing the amount of responsibilities I had. Was that a diff- difficult adjustment to become a front yeah. man from the side man's point yeah, of view? Yeah, but, but I'm good at that. You know, I mean, I, you know, that's something I got to be good at. So... But I did everything just because somebody had to do it. Right. 
you know, somebody had to make cold calls and just try to book shows and get get gigs because you can't just passively wait for the phone to ring all the time, you know, even though, you know, that does happen. And I I did just start out as a side man. You still have, I was always trying to get some kind of gig of my own or a gig for for somebody, you know. Did you always have that in mind as, as your end goal was to be Rock and Johnny Band? Well, my first my first goal when I first started, I thought, man, I could be like, you know, if I was like Spectre, I'd, I'd be set. If I could go to Europe, make a CD, and I was playing every weekend, those are my three goals. Go to Europe, make my own CD, and, and play every weekend. And it took about four years to accomplish that, I guess. How did you get to Europe? Through Tail Dragger. Okay. In and fact, I went to Europe for like? the first time and I recorded my first CD in the same week. Whoa. And that was pretty cool. And I'm like, God damn. This you is know? your first solo CD. Yeah. Straight out of Chicago. That was November of 97. And am I correct to assume that when you recorded that, things started happening for you really quickly? Things were already happening before that, like around 96 was when things really started popping, even 95. Well... Yeah, thereabouts. But Maybe I mean, '96. That's when things really started popping because I I got the Monday night at the Smoke Daddy and I was packing the place and that's what made things pop. And I had it with Jimmy Burns. So right. first, the first CD was with Jimmy Burns, and uh, my band was backing up, backing backing up Jimmy, and uh, that CD like sold a whole lot of CDs for Delmark, which is not a lot for some other labels, you know. But right. it was a big success. I mean, it it you know it. It was, it was over the top for Delmar, and everything associated with that was gold. So, they were which meant that you got them. more gigs. And yeah, and and everything started really popping. Did did you have a, did you have a sense of what you wanted to achieve? Like I don't well, know what kind of you know. I think but... I kind of hit a crisis once I started going to Europe. Once I accomplished those goals, which had seemed so difficult, right? Then I kind of like freaked out, you know. <laughs> Meaning? Because I didn't know where else to go from there. Because you And then I goals. saw a lot of career musicians that seemed like, I don't want to end up like those guys because they're all like lecherous alcoholics or whatever. And I, I don't want to be like, yeah. I mean, you know what I mean? I, I saw like people who were older than me and I thought, man, all they did was play music and they're not doing so good. You At know? least you could see that. Oh, I could see it. Yeah. And um, anyway, I, so once I accomplished that and then I just was regularly playing in Chicago all the time and sometimes around the Midwest. Um, that's when I kind of flipped out and got married. Oh, okay. You, so you, you think that it was a result of you flipping out? <clears throat> well, yeah. You know, there's a certain time, you know, when you're just you're just walking along and then one day you want to get married, you know. And you're kind of happy not being married and then all of a sudden you, you want to get married. Right. And um, that's kind of, I think that's what happens. So then... That's kind of why. But I made partly the, the related to, partly related to the pressures you felt. Yeah, over what to do next. Right. So I just went sideways. But before, sorry, let me go back. I didn't a little know bit. how to go forward. Let me go back to playing in Europe. So you, you had this dream of recording your album, playing Europe. Tell me about that first experience of going to Europe and what that was like. Well, it was really fun, and I just uh, it was a great festival, and Tail Dragger was great, and I was with all these people that. I really looked up to the people who were older than me, including a lot of the, the white musicians. I really looked up to them, like Rick Crayer, Twist, Turner, Studebaker, John. They were all on that gig. And Madison Slim was on harp. And I just looked up to them because of they got to play with all these people that I didn't get to play with, and they had all these great stories, and I thought they were so cool, you know? Right. But that was just every generation like had a turn, you know what I mean? But do you think... Do you think that if I came to Chicago today and said I want to learn the blues, do you think that I mean, obviously the people aren't the same people aren't screwed. there anymore? Yeah, I mean, is that give and take or that mentorship? Does that no, still exist? No, the community is just not there like that. That kind of a mental, that kind of thing is just not there. I mean, the people that I don't know who people would, I don't know what people could do. I mean, there's. But they were there when you were. There. You might yes. be like the last I think generation. It, yes. I think so. I think I was caught the last five minutes of a really amazing thing. And yeah. I, I caught a greatly diminished version of what it had been. I mean, I missed Luther Tucker. I mean, I did see him once, but he was living on the West Coast. I missed Eddie Taylor by two years. I missed Tim Chain. I missed Samuel Lawhorn. 
Um, but did you look at it? Just at you the, didn't look at it that way, though, right? Cause I did, them. yeah, because oh, those did. were some of my favorites. And it's like, you know, but they weren't there, but, you know, all these other people were. So I just did the best that I could. Wow, okay. So when you went to Europe, was it an eye-opening experience? Well, I just thought, I really like this. I got to keep doing this. You know, this is great. I mean, because it was... Because they treat was, you differently, oh, right? Oh, man, yeah, they do. Um, I have to bring up the color issue. The white and the black issue. Was that ever an issue for you or not? Oh, yeah. But, you know, I didn't even realize it so much until until I went to California. And it's just not an issue at all. Oh, interesting. So it's more of like a recent... They have their own issues. I'm sure but that's not an issues. issue because they really have... They don't have the kind of black blues culture large black blues culture that Chicago had or it wasn't as big I'm sure there was something in Oakland right. but I mean you weren't considered like a second you know like someone who just a poor substitute of a real blues guy just you know because you were white you know but did you and, feel that I mean when you worked with Tail Dragger or, or other no people? I never felt it from the artists right, okay. it's not the artists who are responsible for this the artists treat you like you know if you're giving them what, what they want and you're respecting them I've ne- no they're, you know, it's always been great. Right. Tail Dryer. I mean, all those guys. Sam. Sam had, Sam had, you know, Sam was like, gee, I wish I could get a black guitar player, but I guess I'll have to settle for you. You know what I mean? He, You know what I mean? But a, a club would say that. I wish I could get a black band, but I guess I'll settle for you. Right. Um, I got my first record. It's like, can you blacken it up a little bit? And that's a quote. How did you feel when you heard that? What are you going to do, man? <laughs> But you on the other hand, well. on the other hand, I need. I thought, hey, this is a chance for re, for me to give back to people who have given me a chance, mm-hmm. and I did, and I made it. A, a, I I stand by it. So I think it's some of the best. Uh, it's some very good recorded tail dragger, and it's cool to have tail dragger and Sam Lay playing together. I mean, yeah. And um, you know, Sam did a lot for me, so I mean, I got him on this session. I mean, I mean, not that he needs. You know what I mean? I mean, it was an honor to to have Sam on my record. Is what for I'm sure. trying to say. You know. Yeah. Um, and at least I was able to like, he gave me a lot of work. At least I was able to say, Hey, I want to recognize you. Will you please, you know, will you please play my CD, you know? So you got married and then you kind of disappeared for a little while. Yeah. Tell me about what that felt like when you, I mean, was it a conscious effort to say, I don't want anybody to know what I'm doing or cause all of a sudden you just seem to fall off the face of the earth. Yeah. Well, it just didn't work, you know? And just uh it was really hard for me to balance the my jobs i usually had two jobs um with the gigs and it just became a real point of conflict and um it just became you know easier to just not do it and then once you're in something that really doesn't that really doesn't work like that you don't even want your friends to see you like that you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so uh so you wouldn't even bump into people i pretty much i didn't bump into anybody I've, nobody... lived in, I've lived in every Chicago area code, <laughs> but don't try it. I don't recommend that. But I, I just remember what, you know, going to Chicago and saying, hey, what happened to Rock and Johnny? And nobody seemed to know. Nobody knew. And then one day you came back. Tell me about yep. what coming back meant to you. Well, I was pretty scared when I came back because I didn't know if I could pull it off. Had you been playing at all? No, I didn't even touch it. I picked up the guitar like two or three times, and every time I picked it up, it was like, just like sat there with the guitar i didn't know what to do with it man wow and, yeah. so how did you get that thing back i, I just booked a gig it's you know i was that's how you I, did it yeah once i uh you know i'd filed for divorce money was super tight and you know i really needed the money and i wanted to play again i knew i wanted to play again I just didn't know if I could really pull it off. And I actually had my friend Billy Flynn play on that gig. And I was, I mean, always happy to play with Billy. But I remember thinking, hey, if I just can't play and just can't sing and I just can't do it, I still have to provide a product. So (laughs) Billy's got me covered, you know. So um, And and if you're going to get anybody to cover you. Yeah. yeah, You can handle it. Yeah. So, so, um. But I did it, and I'll never forget this. I mean, it was at Nick's, a place he'd play all the time, and 
that's on Milwaukee Avenue in Chicago. And there was 40 or 50 people that came out. I mean, all my old friends. Right. And of course, it was all like morbid curiosity. They wanted to see like, did I look like a zombie or did I still have any teeth left or, you know what I mean? But you hadn't rehearsed? No, but nobody ever rehearses in the No, I know and, that, but and you, I, know, you haven't played for e- eight years or whatever. Yeah. Well, I, once I bought, I went out and bought this guitar because I had gotten rid of all my stuff and everything. And um, I had this guitar and I could pretty much do it, but it wasn't, it took about a year to really get totally solid. But, but that first night you could hit the notes. That... I did it. I just did it. I just stood there and did it. It was rusty, and if, if I heard the recording of it now, I'd probably there'd be a few painful moments. But basically, I did it. And but there was this there was this moment, there was this moment before I hit my first note, where you just have to do it, you know. <laughs> and the, there was this awful silence. To me, it was like the most awful silence I had ever heard. And then I started playing, and I, I must have still like sounded like me, and uh, everyone just kind of like. Everyone was like, oh my God, he's okay, you know? Like, <laughs> did you know, like, it was there a point in the gig where you thought, I'm okay? Or was the whole thing? Oh, I night... knew it right away, man. Yeah, the okay. first five seconds, I knew I was okay. And, and the lyrics were all still there? I just did it. <laughs> it's all burned in my brain, man. Wow. It's like a filing cabinet that I was locked. So I wonder, as a player, from that experience of not playing, and maybe you know stepping totally away from music and coming back to it are you a better player now because oh, of it yeah. yeah but i would not recommend that anyone go through <laughs> i mean no you know, but yes but really like you like, know did, did i your couldn't sing at all, change at all? Like, oh big time i couldn't sing back in the 90s i just sang cuz somebody had to do it i wasn't that great at booking gigs i just did it cuz somebody had to do it you know i wasn't the greatest band leader but somebody had to do it so I did everything because somebody had to do it. But once, once you know, I got divorced and I went through all these real, real, real hard times, like with the money and everything. And, you know, my daughter came along, which was a, a wonderful thing. And once I had all those stresses and anxieties of, of you know, like the, the marriage break, the marriage ending and all that stuff, mm-hmm. then it's like I could sing. And also I probably, it's just, I hit 40 you know, I'm 47 now. Um, I, I had to be 40 years old before my voice didn't sound horrible. So you're happy with your voice? I'm very happy with the way it is now. It's never been better. Well, that's interesting. And and I'm very pained when I hear my old recordings from my 20s. And, you know, I was it was widely criticized and... Go ahead, rightfully so, man. And but I had to do it because somebody had to do it. But I mean, it's it's not just the age thing, is it? That your voice got better? Is it? It's like Eddie Shaw said, it takes twenty years to make a blues man. I mean, I just heard you know very quickly. I heard the latest album, and and the thing that struck me was the voice was much stronger than I remembered it to be. Thank you very much. It is because I've been touring so much, and it is a muscle. It is something you use, and it is something that changes over time. I mean, if you listen to, you know, Muddy Waters from oh, the yeah. 40s and Muddy Waters from the 70s, his voice is way lower. And Mary Lane and everybody, their voices, Lazy Lester. You, I mean, you can hear 50-year-old, 40-year-old recordings and uh, you can see a mass, a big difference in, in just the way, the timbre of their voice. So how easy was Plus, it? Plus, I feel it more. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, that's okay. You feel it more part because of all the shit you went you through. You lived it, yeah. And you feel it and it's just... You know, you so, can really feel it. How easy... So you did this one gig, now you're thinking, okay, I remember the words, I, I can, can play, it. I can do this. You're probably still working full-time. Not yeah. Being, so how long did it take till you decided, I can become a musician again? And, and About two years. And what, was, what were those two years like? It was just a very slow rebuilding process, but I just... I knew what I had to do. I've done it before. I just had to do it again. But it's a different time, right? Like, I, you know, the thing that strikes me, I met you, I think, in 2001, 2002. Yeah, so it's right before I quit. Yeah. Um, but you, you just, you, we, it was when I started documenting the blues and you made an impression on me because of some of the things you said. And at that point, like, I was interviewing musicians and I was, everybody was telling me about blues and how wonderful it is and 
how we need to, you know, you got to live the blues, blah, blah, blah. And then I sat down with you at the Silver Dollar in the basement mm-hmm. and you were telling me you about your frustrations of, of playing in Chicago and competing with, I, I remember, guys with hats and strats. And I always remember that. And then, mm-hmm. I know it's a term that's been used many times, but you're the first one who said it to me. But you were very honest about the difficulties of playing in Chicago back then. And I presume 10, 15 years later, it must have been way more difficult because the scene has changed quite a bit. So when he came back... The scene has changed, but I'm more prepared too. I mean, I have a higher... I'm I'm just just operating at a higher level. Right. But when you came back, I mean, were you... you, Could you call up clubs and say, hey, I'm back and get gigs easily? I did. I did, actually, because it was just catnip. They They just had to see, like... I don't know. I did. I don't know why. They remember me. They right. wanted to know where I was. It was a big mystery. So uh, that was good for my career, kind of. There was a big story on me in, in the in the uh, Sun Times. There was a story on me in the Trib. Um, yeah, I I I had a I had an easier time of it. Right. I had a much easier time of it, and I think some of it is just because when you're in your twenties and you're struggling and you're a side man and you're struggling to not be a side man and be a leader, you know. People are just not going to take you as seriously because you're just you're just so young, right? And um, you know, by the time you hit your forties and stuff, and you're just able to present yourself better. Plus, I mean, then people take you more seriously. Plus, a lot of people that I knew in Chicago who were like my age had actually kind of come up to positions of authority. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I had good contacts. And they were all still there. And um, what what surprised you the most about coming back? Like, was there something like, did you the fact that people actually missed you, that they're welcoming I you back? I really appreciated that they missed me, man. That some people missed me and remember me, and that my work mattered to them. That felt I can really, imagine. really, really good. And that just that put a fire under me to just make me work harder. So, what does working harder mean? So now you're thinking. I'm going to get back. I'm going to start playing as much as I can. And and are you thinking I got to cover all the Chicago territories? Are you thinking I'm going to tour all over North America? I'm going to go to Europe? What's the I thinking? I think what by work, yeah, the the quantity is some of it, but really it's just I'm just I'm holding myself to a high standard of work. You know, and when I'm you know, Sometimes you play with musicians and they're like watching the hockey game while they're playing. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not watching the hockey game while I'm playing my gig, you know? Is this why you weren't that thrilled about the Hockey Hall of Fame when we <laughs> go by it? <laughs> I don't know. It's a little bit Maybe it thing. was. <laughs> Maybe it was, you know? Um, anyway, I'm just, I'm, I'm just pushing myself because, like, these people remember me. They cared about me. They've got kids and wife and all that stuff too, man. And they're choosing to, like you know, pay a cover and, you know, people have very little free time, man. And it's a real hustle. You I know, always just want, to like, get yeah, by. Yeah. And that, that they're, they're spending their money and their time to see me play. I'm going to give it, I'm going to really give it to them. Is it easy to get to that mind, mind, mindset? I just demand it of myself, you know, and, and you, I guess and I learned it in the theater, but I understand it much better now than I did in my twenties. I mean, I always tried in my 20s, but I think I was trying more for myself. Now I'm sort of trying for the people. So you come back and you start. You, okay, so once again, you, you got to get gigs. You want, you want to make a living playing music full time. You're going to record an album. How difficult was the writing process of that first album? Or continually, how difficult it is to is it for you to write? Well, it took a long time for me to... I, always, I, never, I never wrote that many songs, just a few per record. But this time around, I, I wrote 11 songs, which that's like a lot. And um, Was it easy or difficult? No, it was, you know, it was hard. It was, it was work. But, um, you know, I, I, was, I was in Torino and it was raining and it was cold and rainy for the whole week. And I was stuck in this hotel with, with no gigs for like five or six days. It was just kind of this messed up part of the tour that right. was just messed up. And that, that happens sometimes. Yeah. And, um. So I just got up in the morning and wrote songs every day. But I mean, I had plenty of training in like creative writing and stuff, and I know it makes good writing. And I wrote and rewrote and rewrote those lyrics. And it's not, it's, 
they're chiseled. You know, I know how to how to chisel things a little bit. So I'm really happy with with the way it came out, and I'm really ready to. Uh, you know, I used to be like kind of more like Bobby Radcliffe and just like play blues songs. And I'm, you know, hey, I've done that for all this time now, man. I'm really ready to play a lot more of my own songs. And are you going back to the Doors songs at all? No. <laughs> but but you are expanding. I, There's Zydeco music and yeah, I'm expanding. Yeah, there's some surf. There's some Zydeco. I'm kind of encompassing a lot of American music, even though I'm always going to be a Chicago blues guy. I mean, I'm always going to go back to like Johnny Little John and Sammy Lawhorn and Earl Hooker, and uh, and all that. So you That's also recently moved out of Chicago. Yes. Is there still a Chicago sound and scene? There's a Chicago sound, and anybody can do it if they want to play that. If they really bite into it. But is really it any different it. for those who are in Chicago? Is it more real than anybody else, or it, it just doesn't work that way? I think it was a, the stuff I like was a generational thing, and that those generations—it's not just one. I mean, I'm into like two or three of them, but they've right. all kind of come and gone. And there's there's not a lot left of the um, the kind of stuff that I really love. You know, there's Tail Dragger, Mary Lane, Eddie Taylor Jr. There are some good young musicians in Chicago. I like Gabe Carter a lot. There's still some great players. Um, there's still some, some really great players. It's just, I just decided to uh, recontextualize myself in California. How difficult was that decision to do, to move? Well, you know, I was going out there for the last three years. Mm -hmm. And I started working with this great harp player, Aki Kumar. And he sounds real Chicago, real heavy Chicago. So I was going out there and then I remember coming back like from the last, one of the last times. And since I came back, I just felt so depressed. I'm like, man, you know, I should have just stayed in California, you know? Because, because of the players that you played with, because yeah, of the it audience? Just, it was rainy of... and cold and... And, and because and, of weather, I don't know. It seemed like when I got to California, people were just waiting on me and they responded so much. And sometimes, like, people just you know, they just see you around all the time, you're always around, you're playing with the same people. And I was always fighting, I'd be playing with the same people, and they'd be sort of like digging their heels in, playing everything the same way. And I was always trying to play it a different way, mm -hmm. you know. So I was always just push and pull between the same, no, let's go forward. Same, no, let's go forward. I got real tired of that. And um, it was just, I just, you know, the next thing you know, Aki got me this real good gig. And I said, you know what? This time I'm just driving there and staying. It was just like that? Yeah. Wow. So I look at your schedule and you're all over the place. I mean, you obviously have your gigs in Chicago. You have your gigs out west. You're playing in Europe. Yeah. Um, your geography has expanded quite oh, yeah. a bit. So, oh man, yeah, I've been going to Japan. I've, I've, I've never, I've, I've never covered this much ground, but I'm enjoying it. And how is that? How, how does that happen? How do you get to Japan? I just work through my peers. I don't have a big talent agency. I don't have a big record label. I don't have somebody who's on the phone selling me. I'm just doing it on my own, doing my thing, mm -hmm. and I'm working with my peers. Like there's a wonderful harp player and singer, Kike Gomez, in Spain. So I go there in Spain. I'm just one of the boys, and we, we play together. And um, we have a great time. I do the same in Italy with guys like Marco Pandolfi. Um, going to Russia with basically a guy who's... It's not an agent. Not a big thing. They're not big festivals. I'm just playing with like the, probably the best and probably the only blues band in Moscow, you know? And the same in Finland and on and on. So you can, all I have to do is basically link it all together. Uh, but that must have taken some Not, time too. It's, it's a project, but I guess they want to play with me because they were, if they thought I sucked, they wouldn't want to play with me. Right. You know, so these guys want to, I'm just playing with guys who want to play with me. So if you had a goal that said, I'm going to go to Europe, I'm going to record an album, I'm going to play I'm going to play every, weekend. I'm going to have my own gigs every weekend. <laughs> so wow. now... Many years later. What's my goal? What do you, yeah. I mean, obviously you're, you're doing Europe, you're doing recordings, you're going all over the place, but how do you 
what goals do you have at this point or how do you maintain whatever you have i don't know i already going to california was a big goal so that's a good question but i'm really i'm excited about the last cd i did because of all the good original songs Mm -hmm. i'd like to write more original songs that kind of widen the blues tent and like i was just recording with sugar brown and i feel like he's doing that i'd like to do that i'd like to write some more literary kind of things like not a book Mm -hmm. but in music you know um i'd like to just make it a little bit bigger like i mean by bigger i'm i mean like a wider appeal and but still be myself you know you obviously have a following are they are those people who followed you all this time are they very open to you doing widening we'll your gap? see i don't know <laughs> no you don't know i mean when you're playing gigs are you not doing that well i'm point? playing some of my new songs originals and they're like hey man i really like your new stuff and you know but i'm Maybe some people don't, man. We'll we'll see. I just don't know. I mean, I'm not all of a sudden going to do Javanese gamelan music, you know. I mean, it's not going to be that damn crazy. No, no. Yeah, I think if you like American roots music, you know, like you'll get it. But um, and I also want to do some more business stuff. I mean, there's no reason I can't like sell some of this music to somebody. I wrote a song the other day, and I feel like, my God, please get this to like somebody who will make a boatload of money off this, so I can make some money. You know? like, like movie or are we talking like somebody else singing it well I mean I'm open to anything you know but I just think it's super commercial you know mm. and that'll be on my next CD my next CD I want to call it Worldwide Blues and I just want to do like a song in a song in Toronto a song in Japan a song just well, you do could someone. do that now right yeah but I want to record it and then that'll be my CD so Worldwide when you, Blues when you work with all these different bands obviously there's different caliber of players in yeah. Russia and Finland and Japan and whatever. Some of them are awesome. I'm sure they are. Like, could you put together an album that says Rock and Johnny Around the World and, and have a track from each different album and still make it your... Sorry, have a... Record a track with different bands from the different bands you work from. Yeah. With Around the World and may, still make it sound like a Rock and Johnny CD. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I'm good at getting what I want out of out of musicians. Right. I'm good at just sort of like, you know, just showing. I mean, there's there's a million little cues, and um, just to get what, just like they're just like cues when you have a conversation. You have a, a feeling. When do you talk? When do you listen? You know. Right. When do you, you know, these are the kind of cues when you play that sort of like show what you want. And um, you know, I don't play. There's a great phrase, arranged blues. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't play really arranged blues you know it's all so in the moment i'm open to like what is going to happen and what somebody else is going to do and you know people say well what do you want me to play on bass and like usually i'll say you're the bass player you know you're the drummer sometimes I mean, not always but no. I, I say that a lot more than a lot of other leaders i can tell you that but hopefully you're getting competent musicians yeah that can i mean there's a reason why you're working with them yeah so when you moved to California, was that move, other than the fact that you, you now had a bit of a following, was it an easy move for you? It was it was a little stressful and I wasn't quite sure, you know. It's a big I move. was a little nervous. I was a little nervous, but uh I'm glad I did it. And and home is where? I kinda of don't have one. But I mean, is it weird to not feel like this home? It's a little strange. I mean, this is the longest trip I've ever been on. I left I left Cal my first gig was January 31st on this trip. And what is it? March 24th or something? 25th, yeah. Yeah. And you're and not I won't going be home. Back. No, and I won't be back to California until April 26th or 7th. And so like that's, at this That's point, three months. That is. And then the last time I was in Europe, I was there for two months. And um, I don't know. I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying the traveling. Sometimes it's just tiring. Yeah, for you know, sure. but mostly, mostly I really enjoy it. Do you sleep well? Like, is it easy for you to sleep anywhere? Because that would be one of the things. Like, if you're not sleeping in a decent bed or whatever, I think that, that was would... a uh, that was like the first thing. That was the question to Jerry Portnoy or something when he joined the Muddy Waters band. Can you sleep sitting up? You know, <laughs> in the band or whatever, right? Yeah, that's uh, you know, if I can get some, like I have a. I, I go to the pool a lot, you know. I have a a nationwide membership, you know. So like if I can get my laps in or get a walk in, try to get some 
And I try to go out of my way to take care of myself a little bit. Which can't be easy, right? Like eating properly is not easy on the road. Yeah, you gotta you gotta jump on those vegetables when you get a chance. Right. Yeah, when you're in Mississippi for five days, you know. Do they have vegetables down there? They have fried okra. Oh yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, there yeah, there's some, but you know, yeah, I I I go out of my way, man, to try to take care of myself because I enjoy it. But you know, my last job was in a call center, and you know, I think I'm healthier than when I was working at the call center. It was an hour. It was an hour drive, eight hours plus, at at the desk, and an hour back. That's ten hours sitting. That's really bad for you. And I saw these guys who were much younger than me, and they were just getting all pudgy and and just looking terrible. And I'm like, dude, you're toast. You better wake up and get out of here. You I'm, know. <laughs> move to California. You better do something, man, because you know this is really bad for you. For sure. So yeah, traveling is tough too, and I'm, you know, but sometimes, I try what I try to do, and I am I do the I, I do this a lot, is I try to just like, work out of a base for like, a week. Like I stayed at my friend Jeremy Johnson's house. He's a great guitarist and drummer in Minneapolis, so I could stay in his house, and everything was kind of, we we booked several shows that weren't that far away. Right. So. That was kind of like a break, even though I'm really still on the road and I'm not in my own home in my little in my room with my stuff or whatever. I just have my suitcase. That's all right. That's all you need is a suitcase, man. You don't need all that stuff, man. No, but what do you miss? Like when when you've been away from home for like miss, six weeks now, yeah. is there anything? I miss my own cooking. I miss my own cooking, and I miss like working out every day or almost every day. Like when I'm at home, like I'll swim five miles a week. Really? I mean, five days, I'll hit my mile. Right. You know, I miss that. And then if you're cooking, are you a good cook? I'm I'm not a bad cook, and at least I can eat to my taste, man. Like I mean, tonight, if, if you were cooking a meal tonight. I would probably you... just make some steamed okra. Some steamed okra and maybe like, that's a good question. I don't know what I would make. But I want some steamed vegetables. <laughs> I want some plain steamed vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> and other than music, do you have a, obviously literature is still a hobby? Yeah, or? I love to read. What kind of stuff you know, are you reading these days? I'm just oh gee, right now I'm reading that Chester Himes. Uh, he was he was a a black uh, horrible detective writer hmm. in Harlem, and um, it's pretty interesting. It's interesting, like it's really interesting because it's a. a I mean, people read it in race studies classes, right? Even though it's a horrible detective book. Do you so, write at all? Like other than the music, do you? The, the literature. I'm gonna studies. start interviewing some people. I'm gonna start doing what you do. I want to interview some people, you know, who have had a lot of contact with great musicians and who really haven't been uh, been talked to. Right. I want to do some of that, but I haven't been writing anything else. But this is pretty all-consuming. And that's, I guess, the other thing, like, sometimes it's a downside. It's pretty all-consuming what I'm doing because I do have to book things. I do have to publicize things. I did produce this CD. Um, I mean, you know, I wrote the songs. The songs that I didn't write, I paid the royalties. You know, I am the one mailing it out. I'm doing it all. Right. And, uh, and then I'm playing. And, you know, I did 21 one-nighters last month. You know, but you do like two hundred and I do the driving. a year, right? Yeah, I do a lot of gigs, so so it's pretty all-consuming. It takes a lot of time, man. So, uh, but you know, basically, I read and I walk around and exercise and I talk to my friends. But it's kind of an all-consuming lifestyle because the people I work with are my friends, mm -hmm. and so it's kind of like muddy lines. It's to me, it's, I'm not compartmentalized. You know, where it's like, okay, I've got my, you've got your work friends, and then you've got your family, and you know, it's kind of like, I mean, well, these are my friends and I work with them and, and it's all kind of one thing. Yeah, but I can imagine. I mean, releasing your album, doing your album, rewriting your album, playing it all over the place. It's like, there's a lot that goes behind it that a lot of people don't notice. Yeah. And, and the fact that you're doing that and also playing like over 200 gigs a year. Yeah. I can understand why it would be all consuming. And then do you ever take a break? I did go to Hawaii uh, a couple months ago. I went to Hawaii. 
and I'm going. I didn't take a break for a long time, but I have discovered it's just better too. Yeah. And it's it's just much healthier, and just more reasonable. You just do it because at the end of those 21 days, those last three days, I was starting to feel like everyone's just talking to me too much, and I just need everybody to shut up, you know. And like I was just real. I felt like a cat that got thrown in a bathtub, you know, and, and that's too much. 21 days in a row, 21 gigs, 21 one-nighters in a row. And you got to get to these places. Yeah, it's too much. I'm not going to do it again. Tell so, me about your new album. Okay. Is it, it's not out yet. It's out. It's out? Okay. Yeah. And the name? Oh, I wanted to tell you something else real quick. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's okay. I'm going to go on vacation in July, I'm gonna uh, like go out to like Yosemite and like, camp, and, and I'm just gonna like. There's gonna be no internet, no anything. It's just gonna be like, that's it. Chill. You know. So I'm gonna. So I, I am, I am learning to balance things, better. And you asked me about my new CD, and it's called Neoprene Fedora. <laughs> it's a great album cover. Thank you. I have Mark Castle to thank for that. He is a very, very good graphic artist. And he came up with the uh, idea. He was originally going to call it transplant. And I was going to be like growing out of an artichoke field, man. And which is like the, the craziest thing. You, I mean, the way he was described is the craziest thing. So once he got through that crazy idea, then he came up with neoprene fedora, which I always wore that hat. So it's just a picture of me surfing with that hat on. Yeah. Do you surf? No, I've never surfed. No, the picture looks like you do. Yeah. Well, he's very good. And I would you're very surf. happy with the album. I would do anything in the water. I would never go skiing, you know, or anything like that because I don't want to break my arm. I'm terrified of like breaking my arm. Because that's your livelihood. Yeah, I can still play harp for a whole set, but you know, people would be disappointed if I didn't play guitar. <laughs> well, it's great catching up with you. Thank you very much for doing this on short notice. And it's my pleasure. And I know you have limited time, and it's um, you know, it's been great to catch up with you once again. Very good. My pleasure. All right. Thank you. You're welcome.